Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Trump must go, and it starts tomorrow. Yeah, we are right on the cusp of the midterm elections. 24 hours ago, our first uh, attempt, our first opportunity to put the brakes on the Donald Trump presidency, and we must do so tomorrow. Vote, 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 get out, and vote if you haven't already done so. Hey, what do you say, everybody? Here we go on a Monday, Monday, November 5. So good to see you today. And thanks so much for joining us. It is the Bill Press Show as we come to you live from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., which is a very, very tense today in anticipation of what could happen tomorrow. Will we go in a new direction? Uh, let us hope so. Uh, on domestic policy, on foreign policy, on basic decency. Uh, or and civility, or will we just stay in the Trump cesspool for another two years with Republicans in charge of the House and the Senate and cowardly Republicans afraid to stand up to Donald Trump? It is all on the line, and over the weekend, everybody, it seems, was out campaigning. Barack Obama, Oprah Winfrey, not only Donald Trump and Mike Pence, but... Uh, Barack Obama, Oprah Winfrey, Joe Biden, uh, and the whole cast of characters, Kamala Harris, Senator Kamala Harris, uh, and uh, governor's gubernatorial candidate Gavin Newsom down in Georgia campaigning over the weekend. So it is hot. We've got lots to talk about. You've got lots you want to comment on. Remember, you know how to do so. Send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show, on Twitter, at BP Show, and we'll jump right into it. But first... We've got uh, just a couple of other little stories that we always like to, um, you know, bring you up to date. There are other things going on than the midterm uh, elections. You know, how about this? Um, the president is always talking about the failing New York Times. 
mm -hmm. failing New York Times, right? It's probably on the uh, cusp of death, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. If you uh, listen here, uh, Donald Trump talk, uh, the New York Times losing subscribers every day, losing money. They're just about to fold. Uh, I just thought you might be interested uh, in the fact, the facts from the New York Times business section on Saturday morning. New York Times tops 4 million subscribers as quarterly profits rise. Yes, it's yes. about time. So the truth is, <coughs> pardon me, they have more subscribers than uh, ever before uh, to the New York Times, both in print and online, and they are making more money than they ever made before. So rather than the failing New York Times, maybe Donald Trump should acknowledge the booming uh, New York Times. Of course, one of the reasons they're booming is because... Because of him. So because of Donald maybe Trump. Maybe for once we can genuinely say thank you, yeah. Donald Trump. Uh, revenue from digital subscriptions, for example, just one little thing, rose an, uh, uh, up 18% from the same period uh, last year. So thank you for asking. The New York Times doing very, very well. Uh, speaking of the New York Times, a couple of other little items this morning that caught my attention from the uh, from the New York Times. So, um, do you play chess, right? I don't. I know how, but I'd, I'm not good at it, and I don't play it. Do yeah, you? I mean, no. I know how, but the same thing. I mean... I'm it's something I feel like we should maybe get better at. It seems like Because why? it seems like a nice thing to do <laughs> on a Sunday afternoon. I don't know. Well, it seems, first of all, I am not one of the... I, I might play one game of chess a year, maybe. Depends on who I happen to be with, right? Um, but I'm not certainly not one of those people that goes out and sits in the park and, and plays chess, you know. But okay. I think of it as an old man's game. New York Times reports this morning of the top 20 chess players in the world, only four of them are older than 40. This is amazing. The Work youngest is 20. Wow. Yeah. Go play chess. On your radio, on TV, and online, this is The Bill Press Show. All right, 24 hours, and we'll know, are we going to take America in a whole new direction? Are we going to make America America again, or are we going to stay in the same old rut? Hey, what do you say? Hello, everybody. Great to see you today. Here we go. On a Monday, it is Monday, November 5. Uh, this is The Bill Press Show. We are glad to see you today, and we are sure that you are intense with anticipation as much as we are over all everything that's at stake tomorrow, these midterm elections, more at stake than any midterm election that I can recall, because it is not just control of the House of Representatives and the control of the, Demo of the United States Senate, both of which have been in Republican hands for far too long and uh, important that Democrats take back at least one House of Congress, if not two, uh, to put a few, a little brakes, uh, some, put the brakes on some of Donald Trump's uh, outrageous policies and practices. There's all of that at stake. There's also at stake that many governorships, up to 36 governorships around the country, uh, of which Democrats stand to pick up maybe 12 to 15, very, very important with reapportionment coming on the line.
They're all the state legislative seats that are up, again, so important because these are the people who will draw the lines for the 2020 uh, reapportionment. And then there's just, again, the general direction of the country. Do we really want to go down this disastrous road that Donald Trump has paved? Uh, you know, a total a nationalistic, racist approach uh, with personal insults and paying off porn stars, $130,000, a president that uh, we would certainly not want to hold up as a role model for any of our kids, or do we want to put America back um, in the right direction, uh, an America that really cares about, its that stands as the city on a hill, if you will, is still a beacon of hope and opportunity and respected and loved by people around the world and a country that fights for its own citizens to make sure that everybody has a fair shake in this country, not what we're getting under Donald Trump. It's all on the line tomorrow. Um, and that's been, of course, the focus of our coverage for the last couple of weeks intensely with one single message, which is most important message is get out to vote. Turnout, turnout, turnout is going to be the key. No matter what Donald Trump says, no matter what Barack Obama says on the other line, they've been out there pushing, working hard, and so have uh, other surrogates as well. But when it comes down to it, it comes down to you and me, and every single person in that polling place has the same amount of power, the same amount of leverage, the same opportunity to influence the direction of this country, but only if you get out and vote. It is so important, and I'm so encouraged by the fact that the early voting is through the roof. Uh, I talked to a friend of mine, member of Congress, uh, who uh, from the Central Valley of California the day, other day said turnout is up 500% over what it was in the midterms in 2014. This, the turn, early vote alone in 2018 could ex match or exceed the total vote in 2016, a presidential year in some congressional districts. That is huge. We've got to make it happen. Again, vote, vote, vote. Yes, indeed. And by the way, just, just one, before we listen to some of the sound from over the weekend and some of the candidates and surrogates who were, who were out there, you know, um, one general reflection uh, of mine on this whole midterm election, you talk to almost any Democrat, and they will tell you this election is not a referendum on Donald Trump. Uh, I mean, I've, several people, members of Congress here in the studio uh, have said that. That's not a referendum on Donald Trump. That's what they all say. There are other issues, jobs and the economy and education and climate change, and that's all important, and taking care of the middle class. It's not a referendum on Donald Trump. You know, I respect that. I think they're dead wrong. I think it is a referendum on Donald Trump. This election is a referendum on Donald Trump because he has made it that way. He has... By the way, I counted up last night, 53 rallies, campaign rallies that he has done, 11 in the last eight days alone. And when you, when you hear him, we've played a lot of sound from Donald Trump's rallies. What's it all about? What's he talking about? Himself, Donald Trump, himself. He doesn't talk about the candidate. He doesn't even know the names of half the candidates he's out there supporting. In an hour rant, he might mention them for a minute. He might give them the microphone for a minute. And all the rest of it is about me, me, me. And Donald Trump has said over and over again, I'm not on the ballot, but in a way I am. 
So go out and vote as if I'm on the ballot. In other words, you like what I'm doing? You go out and vote, and you vote for me, meaning you vote for any Republican. In fact, Politico is a great story this morning about the fact a lot of Republicans are complaining that Trump has hijacked the election because they've got issues that they want to talk about, and they can't talk about those because Donald Trump has made the, the, uh, the whole election about himself. So it is a referendum on Donald Trump, and I think uh, the Republicans have no choice but to accept that. And it gives voters, all of us, two choices, yes or no. I mean, do you approve of the fact that Donald Trump has wrecked the environment through Scott Pruitt and pulling out of the, of the Paris Climate Accords and, doing, and rolling back everything that Barack Obama had done on climate change? Yes or no? I mean, do you approve of the fact that Donald Trump says he wants to re- go down the list of issues, that he wants to restart the whole nuclear arms race and start building new nuclear weapons and trash the first nuclear weapons agreement to reduce the, the, the number of nuclear weapons signed by Ronald Reagan and Michael Gorbachev back in 1987? Uh, do you approve of restarting the nuclear arms race? Yes or no? I mean, it's just very, very simple. Do you approve of a president who would put billions and billions of more dollars in the, uh, in the military and then use the military as a political prop on the southern border to be putting up barbed wire? I mean, that's really what our men and women put the uniform on for and go through all that basic training for? Something that they do hire farmhands to do, maybe teenagers to do in most farm states? We're sending the United States freaking military down there to do it? Do you approve of this, yes or no? Go down the list on every issue. Or do you approve of the totally racist, nativist, xenophobic, campaign that Donald Trump is running, uh, saying that, that, that there's an invasion, an army invading us, maybe, what now, a couple of thousand people left in this caravan that is still over 700 miles from the border, and Donald Trump is calling them criminals and terrorists and anonymous certain Middle Easterners and all the racist language, or the racist language he's using against Andrew Gillum or um, Stacey Abrams in Georgia. If that's what you want to see in a president, yes, vote yes or no. It is a referendum on Donald Trump from top to bottom. Uh, And, um, again, um, he's making it all about immigration. Interestingly enough, he said the other day that uh, it's not his choice. It's not his choice. Again, remember, in Pittsburgh, 11 people killed, slaughtered by a man who said he was scared of the invasion that was heading our way, an invasion that was talked about by and stirred up by Donald Trump. Um, And what did Donald Trump do after that? He blamed the media for sowing division in this country. Uh, So now we've got the fact that he, he has made immigration the number one issue, the only issue he talks about, in these midterm elections. And who does he blame that on? He blames it on the media. We have the greatest economy ever, uh, but you people don't want to cover that. You would much rather cover cover illegal immigration, which is okay for me too, because frankly, we are doing a great job at the border. Yeah, in fact, uh, he, he has said that the whole thing is on the border and he makes it very stark. He said, if you want crime 
and you want open borders, and you want MS-13 members all over the country, then you vote Democratic. If you want law and order, if you want security, if you want uh, uh, abuse of the military to to be used as political pawns, then you vote uh, Republican. Uh, On the border, the first troops are down there, as we said. They are um, so far. By the way, (laughs) I've got to double-check this, but a reporter friend of mine over the weekend pointed out that on a short-term mission like this, without approval from Congress, the military can stay there like 45 days. The caravan won't be here in 45 days. But, Bill, it has to happen in time for the midterm elections. That's it. You know know what? We won't hear about the caravan after tomorrow. I'll bet you. We'll not hear about them. Um, So, and, and they're not allowed to intercept people at the border. So what are they doing? Again, as I mentioned earlier, they're putting up barbed wire, which for Donald Trump is just fine. He loves barbed wire. He said it uh, yesterday, I think it was a rally out in Missouri. Yeah. Montana. Montana. And I noticed all that beautiful barbed wire going up today. It was a barbed wire used properly can be a beautiful sight. Barbed wire used <laughs> Again. So the when Army, we build the wall, are we also the Army, going? <laughs> the Marines, the Navy, the Air Force, this is their mission to put up barbed wire at the border. It's pathetic. You know, uh, it just goes on and on. It's actually kind of, it leaves you speechless because it's also our tax money paying for this. It's a total waste of their time. And if he's actually pushing this rhetoric of building a wall, what's going to happen? Then we have to spend more money to take the barbed wire down? Uh, yeah, I don't think it's going to be up there forever. Yeah, I heard that, I saw over the weekend the estimate of about $200 million of cost of sending these troops to the, to the border. Yeah, $200 million. Uh, and again, we have more troops at the border than we have in Afghanistan, or we will if, if he goes all the way to what mm-hmm. he said, uh, more than we have in Afghanistan, more than we have fighting ISIS uh, at the southern border, again, for a caravan that is over 700 miles away and may never even make it. And if they do, um, they're going they're go- to seek asylum. They're going to have to show up at ports of entry, uh, and very, very few of them will uh, be allowed. Few of them will be allowed to apply, and very, very few under current processes uh, we'll ever get through. And even if 700 people show up, even if 1,000 people show up, they're going to be outnumbered by troops 15 to 1? Uh, I think there are five troops for every... Uh, every uh, one uh, immigrant. Max caravan. Yeah. Oh, and now, of course, Donald Trump says there are more caravans forming, right? Yeah, I guess staged George, by the Democrats. George Soros is putting a lot mm-hmm. more money down there to, yeah, to, 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 to form more caravans, right, right. Uh, but this all this all part of we have never seen actually and I think this is really disgusting and frightening. We have never seen a national election based totally on fear and on race the the way Donald Trump has framed this one. You know, we saw this in California way back in in the eighties in with prop one eighty seven. Uh, which was Pete Wilson, um, and no, I guess it was in the 90s, right, Pete Wilson. But uh, Prop 187, which a total anti-immigrant thing, which would which would have uh, cut off any 
state program, the, the ability of anybody who is an immigrant from from uh, applying for any state programs in the state of California, getting any assistance whatsoever. Uh, and it was a it was a very very racist move, which the people of California approved, but was then uh, rejected by the courts. And that was an ugly ugly campaign. I haven't seen a campaign. This uh, that ugly since now Donald Trump has made he's made this election sort of a national prop 187, and other people are picking it up. I mean, if it's okay for the president of the United States to launch a and lead a racist campaign, then it's also okay, for example, to for Sonny Perdue, the agricultural secretary, went down to Florida, and said, "We got to win this election in Florida." It's too cotton-picking important. I mean, talk about the dog whistle phrases that people are using. Donald Trump, of course, calling Andrew Gillum uh, a thief and a crook. Right. There in in, in Georgia, there are robocalls calling Stacey Abrams a poor man's Aunt Jemima. I mean, these are outright blatant racist attacks that that Republicans are using uh, not just in the South, all over the, over the country, because Donald Trump is doing it, they feel they can get away with it. And the cherry on top is Donald Trump calling himself a nationalist. It's Everybody yep. knows what that means. Right, exactly. So it is ugly, ugly, ugly. And I think the test in this election, I've said it before, I'll say it again, the test in this election is, are we Americans as racist, as ugly, as hate-filled, as xenophobic as Donald Trump thinks we are? And we're going to have a chance to show it on uh, tomorrow. What am I saying? Not November 6th. Yeah, November 6th. Tomorrow. Fortunately, Donald Trump wasn't the only one out there again. By the way, his uh, last rally will be tonight. He is going out to Missouri. That is one of the tightest Senate races and so, so important. Uh, The latest poll this morning shows that Claire McCaskill is up. Three points over Jess Hawley, I believe that's his name, the Attorney General of Missouri. Uh, Claire McCaskill, great candidate, great senator, uh, and really fits that state of Missouri. He's worked hard to, for the people of Missouri. Uh, so Donald Trump's going to go out there to try that, take that away from her and hold on to the, uh, and bring this Missouri back. Can't let it happen. Uh, and he's got two allies with him. Yes. Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh, who, he's going to be in Cape Girardeau, I think it's called. Uh, you pronounce it Missouri. That's where Don, that's where Rush Limbaugh is famously from. Uh, so Limbaugh and Hannity. Now Limbaugh, we know, is a just a hothead talking talk show host, right? Uh, but Sean Hannity is supposed to be a journalist. He's a very thin veil these days. Very thin. Very veil. very thin. And veil. for Fox News, obviously Fox News has no problem with the host of one of their shows just going out there and becoming a stooge, a political stooge for Donald Trump at this rally. This is their dream, actually. Totally, totally, yeah. An inroad to the White House, I mean. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, if he could afford it, I'm sure Sean Hannity would like to have a job in the White House. But as it is, he's making millions and millions and millions of dollars at Fox and still is uh, close to the president and advising the president. They call him actually the real chief of staff because he's on the phone with the president uh, several times a day. Well, you know what? 
They can have Sean Hannity, and they can have Rush Limbaugh. I'll take Oprah. And Man, there she me was. too. Uh, there she was, down in Georgia. Not her first foray into politics, of course. Her first foray was for with for Barack Obama back in 2007, uh, and then again for Hillary Clinton in 2016. Uh, but she didn't plan to get involved this year until she saw Stacey Abrams in Georgia. And uh, what a great person and a great candidate she is. And Oprah was down there saying, but I'm, I'm, I'm here for Stacey, but don't think I'm here for 2020. I still am saying I'm not going to run. I'm not trying to test any waters. Don't want to go in those waters. Uh Uh-uh. And she made it very, very clear. We've got, again, what I say at the top of the show, turnout, turnout, turnout. As Oprah said, you got to get out and vote. And particularly speaking to African Americans, if you don't, you are dishonoring your ancestors. Anybody here who has an ancestor who didn't have the right to vote, and you are choosing not to vote wherever you are in this state, in this country, you are dishonoring your family. Good for Oprah and boy, I don't know if you saw the video, Oprah went actually door to door with Stacey Abrams. Can you imagine opening your door and there's Oprah, right? Oh my gosh, I... I canvas and I hate it. Like it gives me anxiety every time I knock on a door. Um, and I also, I so I feel a lot of sympathy for the people that come and knock on my door. But I would just, I don't think I'd be able to talk if Oprah knocked on mine. <laughs> it would be like the publisher's clearinghouse. Yeah. Like <laughs> just total shock and I don't know, tears maybe. And Oprah says, yes, indeed. We are not powerless. This is when we exercise our power. We are not powerless. Every single one of us, every single one of us has the same power at the polls. Yes, indeed. That's so true. Every single one of us. Michael Bloomberg, you and me, we are, you walk in the poll. We've got Tom Steyer, all the money he's got. By the way, Tom Steyer is going to be our guest tomorrow in studio. Uh, Tom, at 7.30 a.m., tune in. 7.30 a.m., East Coast time. Uh, and But, you know, our votes, just as important as his, counts just as much as his does. Counts just as much as Oprah's does, too. Also on the campaign trail, and it was great to see him out there <coughs> for now several days in a row. And he is in rare form. Uh, President Obama, who puts it on the line, it's health care. Health care is one of the most important things. Uh, and people's lives are on the line when it comes to health care. Your vote might mean that somebody has health care who wouldn't have had it. You could save a life with your vote. Save, think about that, save a life with your vote. And here, President Obama says, are some of the things, this is what's on the ballot, he says. How important it is when you add up um, what's at stake in this election. Health care for millions is on the ballot. A fair shake for working families is on the ballot. And most importantly, the character of our nation is on the ballot. Great way, great way to sum it up. And again, uh, President Obama saying, uh, don't complain, don't bitch, don't moan. 
get out and the same message of Oprah. Get out and vote. Don't just sit there and vote. Don't just sit there and complain. Don't get anxious and throw up your hands and say, oh, my God. Don't hashtag. <laughs> you need to vote. Yep, that's it. You need to vote. That's the only answer. So, uh, and, you know, it's there's just simply, simply no excuse whatsoever. Again, if you haven't already voted, and so many have, but if you haven't already, make sure you know where to vote and get out there early and get it in the get it in the bank. Uh, Joe Biden's also been out there nonstop, just about. Joe Biden again, uh, saying here is what it's, this is his take on what's at stake tomorrow. We're in a battle for America's soul. You know, uh, I don't think he's exaggerating at all. I really do think, I said it earlier, this is, this is a battle for the heart and soul of America and for us to show who we really are as a people. Absolutely. Are we this ugly, racist, hate-filled crowd that Donald Trump thinks we are, or are we better than that? Are we better than Donald Trump thinks we are? I think we are. I pray that we are, and uh, I pray that we show it uh, tomorrow um, with a with a very strong. Just throw this gang out, both the House and in the Senate. Uh, some job numbers came up Friday while uh, I was out. By the way, salute to uh, Chris Liu. Always does a great job filling in. It was good to have him here on Friday. I hope you uh, had a good time with Chris. And um, yeah, he's the former um, Deputy Secretary, Secretary of, Labor, of Labor, and he was yep. joined by Rebecca Vallis from CAP, who um, heads up their poverty center there. And yep. it was an excellent conversation on what these jobs numbers actually mean and putting it in context. You can right. catch it on our podcast. And also joined by uh, Congressman Don Beyer, one, yes. of our, one of our favorites as well. Um, so the job numbers did come out, 250,000 jobs in October, which is great, by the way. Um, and um, and. Everybody involved with that gets credit for it, uh, but it is worth pointing out this is now uh, 85, I think maybe even more than that, at least 85 consecutive months of positive job growth. Um, like 75 of those happened under, or maybe a little less than that, but anyway, the vast majority of those, of course, happened under predates. Barack Obama, our right. beautiful president now, yeah. as President Obama could not resist pointing out in one of his campaign rallies. The economy created more jobs in my last 21 months than it has in the 21 months since I left office. Yes. So, uh, President Trump, yes, you can take credit for uh, what's happened since you've been there. But don't forget, you didn't invent positive job growth. It started under Barack Obama. It has continued. And wages are even starting to creep up just a little bit. But the, the of course, the underbelly, soft underbelly of this um, economic recovery is that most of the benefits of economic recovery, most of the new income have gone to the top 1% of Americans, have not, have not been shared by the vast majority of working class Americans. Uh, that part of the recovery is still, let's hope, still to come. Oh, got a great lineup for you today. Adam Walner is going to join us from uh, McClatchy to take us through some of the most important of the midterm uh, elections. Uh, Maggie Thompson at the Center for American Progress heads a new project they've got called 
generation progress uh, with the important challenge of getting millennials involved and out to vote, uh, and, and, and again, involved in the, uh, every step of the election process. And then our good friend, the senior political reporter from NBC News, John Allen, will be along as well. So we'll take a quick break, pick up with Adam Walner on the other side. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Yeah. Hi. Uh, yes, indeed. <laughs> Here we are. We are back uh, on um, this Monday, November 5. Uh, and uh, joining you from our studio on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., as always, where we're brought to you today by the American Federation of Government Employees, those good men and women of the AFGE under President J. David Cox. Uh, proud to get up and work for America every day. They're the people who keep good people who keep our uh, federal agencies running day in and day out. Uh, and we salute them, and certainly, and thank them for their support of the program uh, as well. We're coming to you live again from Washington, D.C., capital of the free world. And the day before the midterm elections, we have finally reached the end of this long process. Uh, but, of course, if you like politics, don't worry. Uh, we'll start talking about 2020 uh, the very next day. <laughs> uh, it won't take us long. And some people are already talking about 2020. We have tried not to because of the importance of the midterm elections. Uh, and um, we're not the only ones who are out there trying to keep up with all the important governor's races, Senate races, and House races, uh, which is why we call on the help of our good friend Adam Walner from McClatchy, uh, political reporter for McClatchy. Adam, good to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. End Bill. of the road, huh? Yeah, we're, we're finally Can we take here. like two days off before we start talking about 2020? Oh, I, I'd gladly take a couple of weeks off, you know, but, uh, but I, I, I fear that that's not going to happen. It'd be nice to take a year off. <laughs> I was going to say a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, but, yeah, yeah, but I mean, the, I mean, the thing with that is, you know, everyone always thinks of, oh, well, you know, the next election after this one is is two years away. But it's just, I mean, with the presidential cycle, I mean, those those first primaries are starting up early in 2020. So really, I mean, and and, and you know, like the first the first debates could be happening by, by next summer already. So I think the timeline is really going to be moved up for plus, a lot of these candidates. And plus, Donald Trump formed a reelection committee in 2017, early 2017. Mm -hmm. And uh, every one of these rallies, I know, ostensibly, he's going to Missouri for uh, Hawley. Yeah, Josh Hawley. Josh right. Hawley. But he he didn't. He's not going to Missouri for Josh Hawley. He didn't go to um, yeah, Florida, Georgia right, for Brian Georgia, Kemp. Yeah. He didn't go to Georgia for Florida for Ron DeSantis. He's campaigning for himself. I mean, the, if you look at these rallies, they're holding signs Trump 2020. Right. Well, and yeah, that's been the interesting thing about looking at where Trump has been going sort of in the final stretch of the campaign. He's not exactly going to places that are going to be, uh, you know, you know, the states themselves might be battlegrounds, but he's holding these rallies in Trump country, you know, yeah, in, in right. cities every, and counties every that, one of them. that really voted for Trump. And, you know, and he's really and he's really been focusing on on the battle for the Senate and places where he can help in the Senate. You know, you don't really see him right. going to the most competitive House districts right now because the most competitive the most competitive House districts, he is not very popular. And the reason a lot of these districts are even in play is because of him. A lot of these kind of Republican, traditionally Republican leaning anyway, suburban areas where Republicans are actually trying to distance themselves. From, from and, the and the 
uh, and the theme of these rallies, all, every one of them is keep America great again. So that's 2020. That's the 2020 version of make America great right. again, keep America great. Again. So they're all Trump campaign rallies, every one of these rallies, uh, which gets to a point that I personal sticking point for me. And the prop that he's using for all the, most of these rallies, the last few at any rate, is Air Force One. Mm-hmm. The, the plane rolls up on the tarmac. The crowd is there. He walks down the steps of the plane and walks into the crowd. Now, since when is Air Force One a political stage, right? I mean, most other presidents, Republican or Democrat, were pretty careful to try to distance. You don't campaign from the steps of the mm-hmm. White House. Sure. I don't think you should campaign from the steps of Air Force One right. either. Yeah, yeah, he's certainly been been blurring those lines, and and as you said, with him, you know, launching his his campaign. I mean, re, you know, his campaign is is his reelection campaign is already underway in, in a yeah, lot of ways. So, right. You know, I th- I think uh, for uh, for President Obama, if I remember correctly, I think I don't think he actually officially launched his reelection campaign until like the spring of of twenty, you know, or of uh, I guess that would have been twenty eleven or you know yeah, or so, right, somewhere around right. there. Um. So yeah, everything's starting up earlier. So that's going to move up a lot of Democrats' timelines. And just the fact that there are so many Democrats looking at running, I think people are going to want to get an early leg up o- over the others. I'm reminded, of course, in, in the 2016 presidential campaign, uh, when Donald Trump had his big, his own plane, mm-hmm. the Trump yep. plane, right? Trump won or whatever they called it. Uh, they used that the same way as a prop. I mean, he would roll up right. into these hangars or roll up onto the tarmac and step and his plane was the background now he's using air force 1 which i i think is an abuse of uh of power an abuse of air force 1 uh i i i hope somebody all right here's your assignment yeah okay so <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope somebody does this i hope you do this i'd like to take a look at how much money these rallies are costing and who's paying the freight mm-hmm. because you know sometimes um and i've been on some of these trips where you go with the president, and it's a mix of politics and business, right? You know, they may he may may visit some campus, or they may visit some business, or they may be doing something at the same time. Then they have a fundraiser with supporters or something like that, and they always divide up. Okay, the White House will pay for, or the we general public will pay for this part of the trip, but the campaign has to pay for that part of the trip. Mm-hmm. These these trips. The last few of Donald Trump, like today, going to Missouri for a campaign rally, are 100% politics. So the campaign should be paying 100%. Uh, I wonder if they are. Okay. Yeah, it's a good well, question. Well, f- 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 that's your assignment, Adam. <laughs> uh, next time you come back, we want to know the answers. All right. So generally, overall, um, House, Senate, and governor's races. Um, like to get down to the state legislative level, but there's so many of them, uh, it's it's uh, it's hard to get there. Uh, generally, uh, what's your sense of the House? Well, I, I think you know even the most optimistic Republicans at this point, I think, are are kind of bracing that that they will lose the the majority on Tuesday night. Uh, you know, there after the the Brett Kavanaugh hearing, you know, there was kind of you know, a lot made about maybe a little bit of a bump Republicans received there, sort of closing that enthusiasm gap, and and even a lot of Democrats I think acknowledge that there was some movement right after 
those hearings of Republicans sort of coming home to the party, Republican-leaning voters who hadn't quite made up their minds yet, whether or not that was totally due to Kavanaugh or just sort of the natural crystallization that happens in the final weeks of the campaign, kind of unclear. But but I think since then, um, a lot, you know, some of that in, uh, you know, some of that has dissipated and we're kind of back to where we were, I think, a little bit before the Kavanaugh hearing that probably the most likely outcome is that Democrats are able to take back control of the House, whether that's narrowly by a couple seats. You know, I, I haven't really heard anybody go, you know, even among Democrats go above, uh, you know, a net of 40 seats, which would, you know, you know, that's a pretty significant margin when you only need a net of 23 to, to win it. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, as we learned from 2016, anything can happen. There still is a shot that Republicans could hold on. But I think I think members of both parties would agree right now the more likely scenario is that Democrats are able to take the majority. It's just a question of by how many seats. Yeah, I've seen a couple of stories, actually, where people are saying, that, you know, um, that things look pretty good, but Democrats are nervous. Damn right, Democrats are nervous. They should be nervous after mm-hmm. 2016, right? You know, they'll never and go. They'll never go into an election again as cocky or as confident right. as they were in 2016. And, and when you're dealing with with just such a wide range of of house seats, that's what makes kind of forecasting this so difficult. Where you know, right now you know there are so many seats in play, and that's and that's what's working in Democrats' advantage. There are a lot of open seats where Republicans retired, a lot of other sort of uh, traditionally Republican-leaning seats where Democrats are benefiting from the environment. So they certainly have more opportunities, it seems, than Republicans at this moment in time. But at the same time, you know, you look at the polling that's come out, you know, whether it's what the New York Times, Siena has been doing, or you know, even the congressional ballot. It's not like Democrats have huge leads in a lot of these races. So you know, they still need you know a lot of races to. To, to break their way. It's just that, you know, for Republicans to be able to hold on, I mean, they really need everything to, to go right for them. They, you know, they really don't have a lot of margin for error where Democrats can maybe afford to, to, to miss a couple on the margins while still kind of focusing on those core battlegrounds and still be able to come out on top. Uh, so when my alarm went off this morning, I uh, what I always do, I sat on the side of my bed and picked up my iPhone, mm-hmm. and there I had a Trump, a test, a tweet from Donald Trump. And I actually laughed out loud. Um, my wife was wondering, what are you doing? But anyhow, because Donald Trump's tweet says, Dana Rohrbacher has been a great congressman for his district and for the people of Cal, California, Mr. President. He works hard and is respected by all. He produces. Dems are desperate to replace Dana by spending vast sums. Oh, God forbid that the Democrats are spending money, right? <laughs> to elect a super liberal who is weak on crime and bad for our military and vets. As you point out, he hasn't been campaigning for House Republicans, but every once in a while he'll send out one of these. So here we are the day before the election, and he finally gets down the list as far as Dana Rohrbacher. By the way, who's going to lose? You think I so? Mean, yeah, right. Democrats are going to pick up, I'd say, five seats in as many as five seats in Southern California, in Orange County, right, in San Diego County, in Trump country, uh, and I think that's going to that's going to set the, the the whole trend for the country. And closer to home here, um, so by, by the way, so there you've got um, uh, also Duncan Hunter. Mm-hmm who's been indicted right. for misuse of campaign funds on the ballot. Um, one way or the other, even if he wins, he's going to prison. So I, I, cannot, I can't believe anybody, even Republicans, would vote for him knowing. But anyhow, he's up. Dana Rohrbacher, 
Um, there's the Ed Royce seat, mm-hmm. which is empty, and then yep. Mimi um, Mimi Walters Mimi Walters yep. seat. She's also considered a real good pickup. So that's yeah, and then yeah, then uh, Daryl Ice's open and Daryl Ice's seat, seat well. right? Yeah. yeah, those five. Um, but closer to home here in in Virginia, uh, Northern Virginia, uh, we had Governor Terry McAuliffe on a special podcast over the mm-hmm. weekend, who said he thinks he'll pick up at least three seats there. Um, Barbara Comstock's seat. Uh, but with uh, Jennifer Wexton, uh, David Bratt, who beat uh, Eric um, Cantor, yeah. Eric Cantor. Um, I thought the ads against David Bratt are really good. Um, that he went Washington. Here's a guy who campaigned. He said that Eric Cantor was not conservative enough. Mm-hmm. That he would go to Washington. He, David Bratt, promised to go to Washington and stop deficit spending and get the Republican Party back on track. And then he voted for the $1.6 trillion deficit, I mean, a, a tax cut, right, So, uh, which which added that to the deficit. Anyway, that's another w- seat. And then um, Leslie Cockburn, Coburn? Yeah, yeah, yeah. a couple other seats in Virginia, I think, the, that are that the, maybe a little more on, on the, you know, I think, you know, Virginia 10, I, you know, I, a lot of people in both parties think that one's kind of been, been done for a while, you know, Northern Virginia. Really, Jennifer Wexton yeah, over Barbara over, Comstock. Over Comstock and, yeah, she, I mean, that's the, your district, Ray, isn't it? No, I'm Don oh. Byer eight. You're Don Byer eight. Yep. Okay, he'll be good. So he's gonna win. And and one thing too, working for in the Democrats' favor in in Virginia in Virginia this year is that um you know the, the top of the ticket you know Tim Kaine is gonna cruise to to right. the election right, right now. I mean yeah, Republicans well. weren't able to put up a strong challenger against him, so that's gonna make a big difference in Virginia and a lot of these these uh, states that maybe have some tight. House races down ballot, but at the at the statewide level, some of those governors and Senate races aren't looking all that competitive. Democrats are hoping that'll that'll benefit them all the way down the ticket. All right. So uh, I, you and I both agree Democrats need 23. They'll they'll get prob- they'll get between 25 and 40 and take back that what what it looks like take back the House. Uh, and I believe Nancy Pelosi will be the next speaker, uh, making history yet again. Uh, the first woman speaker and the first speaker, I believe. To be reelected as speaker, uh, to double check that. But let's go look at some of the Senate races. Uh, we know what the key ones are. Uh, one of them certainly being Missouri. Uh, this poll out this morning, even Fox News was reporting this poll that Claire McCaskill up three points over uh, Josh Hawley. Uh, that's 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 a pivotal race. Yeah, yeah, that would be significant if McCaskill was up. You know, I think um, you know, McCaskill is viewed by by a lot of folks on from both parties as one of the more vulnerable Democrats right, up right. this year, you know, m- maybe even second, uh, you know, overall right now to, to Heidi Heitkamp in North Dakota, which is a state that Trump carried by by 36 points. Um, so, so you know, that, that would be key. You know, I think, you know, for, you know, Democrats, you know, at this point for them to take back the Senate, I mean, you know, you know, I was talking about how everything would have to go right for Republicans. And that's, I mean, things would, re- I mean, everything would really have to fall in place for them on the Senate side. They basically need a clean sweep of not only defending all their Democratic incumbents, but, you know, then, then flipping a couple seats as well. You know, you got Arizona, Nevada, and then, if you know, you lose one on the other end, then all of a sudden you're talking about, you know, Tennessee or, or Texas. Uh, so, I, you know, I think that, you know, they'd be happy to just sort of limit their losses in the Senate, you know, maybe keep keep the majority the way it is, maybe only lose a net of one seats. I mean, you know, they're just defending seats in, in really deeply Republican territory, whether it's Hyde Camp. McCaskill, you have Joe Donnelly in Indiana, um, and but but then you know you have John Tester who looks like you know he's he's hanging on pretty well in Montana. Joe Manchin the same in West Virginia. Uh, it's, it's just not a favorable map for them at all. Right. Um, I did speak to a former Senator Kent Conrad over the weekend. 
um, who is in North Dakota, where that he represented in the Senate. In fact, Heidi Heidkamp took his seat, uh, and he and his wife uh, Lucy are out there campaign were out there campaigning for Heidi Heidkamp. And he said uh, he thinks things are look he thinks things are looking better. That he sees some movement in the polls, and um, so from his lips to God's ears on on that one. But you're right. Um, the to to for the which everybody admits is an uphill battle for Democrats to be able to take back the Senate. It would mean holding on to um, those five key states mm-hmm. that we've talked about, uh, Indiana and Missouri and West Virginia and Montana and North Dakota, and then picking up to mm-hmm. Arizona, Nevada, Tennessee, or Texas. Uh, Beto O'Rourke was um, talking over the weekend. Of course, he is uh, has has been an incredible candidate, uh, all kinds of energy and inspired a lot of people. Um, but some people are now saying this, you know, this is flipped. The cruise look is is now uh, pretty safe. I'm I don't believe that. Neither does Beto. Beto talks about one thing about the energy that he's generated down there. I just, again, am just really encouraged by the energy, the participation, um, the voter turnout so far. I think all of that is, is a great sign for our democracy. And Beto admits, uh, whichever way it goes, it's going to be pretty close. If, if nothing else, it reflects the truth that we all know that this is going to be very, very close up to every single one of us to do all that we can to make sure that we win this. And, and I'm, I'm going to do everything on my part. Uh, I know that our team is as well. That would be a huge upset. It would be, uh, you know, you know, every poll has had Cruz up, and you know, by yeah. you know, either kind of like mid to or even upper single digits. Uh, but because in Texas of all in places, Texas, right, yeah. right. So you know, the, the fact that it's even close is, is pretty remarkable. And but yeah, for our work to win, I mean, he's gonna just have to. He, what he has to hope is that these polls aren't totally capturing what turnout is gonna look like in Texas. He's gonna need a lot of young people, a lot of you know liberals who maybe you know don't usually vote in Texas in midterms. He's going to need to bring people to, to the polls who are maybe voting for the first time or just usually don't turn out in this environment, which is a, a huge challenge in, in a state like Texas. And one would also hope that uh, there'd be a big Latino vote in Texas. I right. mean, if 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 Donald Trump, Donald Trump couldn't do any more than he has done, it seems to me, to uh, motivate uh, Latinos to vote, to register and to vote. You know, I mean, it's basically been open warfare on Im- immigrants, uh, and um, that certainly worked in California to, we call it, awaking the sleeping giant in mm-hmm. terms of the Latino vote. One would hope it would work in Texas as well. Uh, and that's, that, that it's, it's going to be turnout, isn't it? In that race as well as many it's, others. It's, it's, it's the old, one of the oldest cliches in politics, it is, right? But, but it's so <laughs> true. Yeah. It really is, uh, you know. Yeah, especially in, in a state like like Texas, and you know, in a lot of these areas around the country where you know Republicans have had you know a, a real stronghold there. You, you just need people to turn out who who haven't otherwise, and and you need to kind of hope you know, on the other end that maybe there are some Republicans who aren't totally comfortable with what Trump is doing or what's with what congressional Republicans are doing, and they maybe stay home this time around. It's just kind of that that balancing act. Right. Um, one of the other possible pickup states, uh, you know, Arizona's gone back and forth. Mm-hmm. I, uh, the last poll I saw, Kirsten Cinema was back up again uh, over Martha, Martha McSally. Um, it could go either way. Same thing in Nevada, I think. Jackie Rosen, Dean Heller. Dean Heller at one time everybody thought was 
Cook, yeah, yeah, and now yeah. It's remarkable, found, right? I, you know, I, I think at, at this point last year we would have thought Heller was easily the most vulnerable yeah, right. senator of any party, and he's he's really done a, a good job hanging on in that race, and it's it's been a toss up all the way to the end. Uh, a surprise a, a state in play is Tennessee, uh, and I thought so with Phil Bradenson, former mm-hmm. for, former governor, running for Senate, very well loved in in Tennessee, up against uh, Marsha Blackburn, who is not the most popular in. Uh, a Republican in the Congress, I thought it was a little sign of desperation on her part yesterday where she said, here's what this vote is all about. If you want to vote no on Hillary Clinton and her cronies one more time, stand with me. Let's win this election on Tuesday. She's dragging up Hillary Clinton. It's yeah. not just about Trump. It's about this Hillary. This is a chance to vote against Hillary Clinton. Right. Well, yeah. I, well, for a lot of these Republicans, I think you know they they want it to look like 2016 again, right? They they want yeah, to have kind yeah, of people driven back in, into their corners, and they kind of want to remind people, you know, why they went for Trump uh, the first time around in 2016, and kind of what the the alternatives are. Um, but, but of course, Hillary Clinton not on the ballot and uh, hasn't really been too too active on on the campaign trail either. So she's maybe a little bit tougher to right. to tie her to, to Democrats uh, this time around, especially the, someone like Bredesen. Right. In the governor's races, uh, there's so many exciting races around the country, but none Mm -hmm. more than Florida and Georgia, right? And the president knows that. He's been to both states at least twice. Um, He's said some nasty things about Andrew Gillum and about um, Stacey Abrams uh, as well. Yeah, so I actually have a question about that. Um, You may have heard the news about the yoga studio shooting in Tallahassee over the weekend. So Andrew Gillum, of course, stepping off the campaign trail. Do you think that's going to hurt him, Adam? In these last few days, um, I, you know, I, I think it, it probably not. Only because I, I think you, you, maybe you do yourself more harm than good by kind of continuing to go out on the, on the campaign trail. In, you know, w- with that going on, especially yeah, given that he, and, and he and he is and he is the mayor of of, of Tallahassee, right? You know, yeah. I think, you know, I I think you know. You know, it, it's always tough to to kind of tell us when you have these late breaking moments in a campaign, just day just days before an election, how it's going to affect everything. Um, but but I, I think you know he, he probably decided you know kind of weighing the, the pros and cons. It's, it's probably not not the best look to be out. Uh, right. You know, camp, no, campaigning it's like Rick Scott with a hurricane. I mean, it's um, a, a double two edged sword if you want. But it's uh, it it reflects some trouble in his home in his. I guess it's also territory. an opportunity to demonstrate. That's what his I was just going to say. It's also an opportunity to demonstrate his leadership, and I think he did so. Uh, yeah, in, in, in that case. Um, and Stacey Abrams had a uh, big, big uh, boost with Oprah mm-hmm. uh, coming out of the sidelines to campaign for her. Uh, we saw, we've seen a, a, some big, a lot of big. Not only Donald Trump and Mike Pence, right? Barack Obama's back. Oprah is back. Right. Joe Biden's Joe been Biden, out right. there, you know, nonstop. Um, Oprah saying, don't think this is anything, though, about 2020, right? She says, um, this is all about uh, Stacey Abrams. Um, Here's Oprah. I'm not trying to test any waters. (laughs) Don't want to go in those waters. (laughs) Uh, Can somebody like Oprah help? 
Oh, I, absolutely. I, I I think so. I mean, you know, she's you know an incredibly popular figure, and while she doesn't, uh, you know, she clearly doesn't want to include herself in kind of that 2020 conversation. I mean, uh, you know, some of the, the polling that's been done on her shows that you know she has you know a wide appeal right now because she is you know kind of seen as, as a nonpartisan figure, obviously. So you know, I, I you know I think you know anytime you can you can bring in someone who's who has that kind of level of fame and, and is that well liked, you know, I, I think it can only help a, a candidate. Right. Uh, and Barack Obama there for Andrew Gillum, I think it was uh, Friday. Um, I talked to um, one reporter friend of mine of ours who um, uh, was saying why he watched the rally. I didn't. That uh, Barack Obama was in great, great form. Uh, he was there with um, Bill Nelson mm-hmm. and with Andrew Gillum. Uh, but as good as Obama was, he was not the rock star of the day. That the rock star of the day was Andrew Gillum. This was Friday before that shooting, obviously. Uh, Gillum has really emerged as a strong candidate and looks good in, in terms of the polls again. Yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I think basically every poll since the primaries has shown Gillum up on on Ron DeSantis, the Republican there. And you know, if anything, Gillum is actually running stronger than than Bill Nelson, the, the yeah, incumbent yeah, Democratic yeah. senator, which is kind of remarkable. You kind of think it would be the other way around on that, but but yeah, in both the Florida and the Georgia race, is just really clear contrast there in terms of the candidates running against each other, and could tell us a lot uh, about the, the environment heading into 2020. Right. Uh, yeah. If they called Jeb Bush low energy Jeb. <laughs> Democrats could call Bill Nelson low energy Bill too, right? Yeah, uh, great, great rundown. A lot of other races we didn't get to, but hey, um, we did what we could here. <laughs> hey, thanks so much, Adam, for coming sure, in. Uh, McClatchyDC.com. And when we come back, Maggie Thompson this from Generation is the Progress Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Indeed, Trump must go. And we have one more day to do so. It starts tomorrow. Our first chance to put the brakes on the Trump administration. Tomorrow, November 6th. Today is Monday, November 5th. Great to see you today. Thanks so much for joining us as we come to you live from our studio on Capitol Hill, Washington, D.C., with all the news of the day, particularly uh, news leading up to tomorrow's midterm elections with so much at stake, uh, the control of the House of Representatives, control of the United States Senate, Uh, The governorships uh, leading into reapportionment for 2020 and the state legislative races as well, all part of that same equation. Uh, Don't remember in all of my time in politics any midterm elections with so much on the line. So it's great to see you today. Hope you had a great weekend. Beautiful, beautiful weekend here in Washington, D.C. Just the perfect, perfect 
temperature. Uh, but I hope you had a chance to uh, relax with friends and family, recharge your batteries, and are ready to leap into another busy uh, news week, particularly, again, with the midterms coming up tomorrow. Uh, we want to hear from you what you think about the issues of the day and um, the direction this campaign is going in and what opportunities we have on Tuesday. Send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show, on Twitter, at BP Show. So we'll jump right in. But first, a couple of other little things uh, that we wanted to uh, make sure you bring you up to date with. So um, it's important that everybody get out and vote. Get out and vote. That's the message. Uh, no excuse not to. Uh, you're dishonoring our heritage. Uh, and many of you are dishonoring your ancestors who didn't have women, for example, who didn't have the right to vote. African Americans didn't have the right to vote. You're dishonoring your ancestors if you don't get out and vote. But it's, it's also worth pointing out uh, something that I would hope would change, that nationwide, still today, some 6.2 million citizens cannot vote because they have felony records. In so many states, you still, if you've, if you've been convicted of something, you served your time, you're back in society, but you're not allowed to vote. It is just totally unfair, I think, and un-American and undemocratic. And I would hope it would change. I hope it changes, too. And it's so many of those are probably bogus, um, racially motivated. Um, or or nonviolent drug crimes. Or nonviolent drug crimes. Whatever, yeah. Uh, and, you know, the great story, I think, we told you before, over the weekend on our podcast, uh, we had an interview with a former governor, Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe. And not in that interview, but when I've interviewed him before, uh, Governor McAuliffe was able to restore the vote to felons in Virginia uh, in a very dramatic way. Uh, the legislature will not pass it. He did it by executive order and said felons now are allowed to vote in Virginia. And the judge overruled that. So Republicans sued, uh, and the judge went along with them and overruled it. Uh, and in their ruling, they said a judge cannot do this on on uh, mass. He could not. Or, I mean, a governor could not do that on mass. He could not do that for 4,000 people or however many it was. And so, uh, the governor called his legal counsel in and said, "Now wait a minute. So if I can't do it as a whole group, does that mean I could do it one at a time?" And the counsel said, "Yes." And so Terry McCall told me the story about he had his. <laughs> Council bring in a stack of 4,000 papers, each one with a different name, and he sat there at his desk and signed every single one of them individually to restore the right to those fellows to vote. Um, good for good for him for many reasons. Watch Terry McAuliffe, by the way, in 2020. He might very well make a move. Uh, and finally, I want a little shout-out to a cheerleader for the San Francisco 49ers who took a knee during the national anthem. So keeping not, the fight alive. Exactly. Not just the uh, NFL male players, but a cheerleader joining in. Good for her. We'll be right back. On your radio, on TV, and online. This is the Bill Press Show. Yes, indeed. Tomorrow, do we take a new direction or we just stay in the gutter with Donald Trump? That's on the line. Hello, everybody. 
Welcome to the Bill Press Show here, our second hour together today on this Monday, November 5, the day be, the big day, uh, last day of campaigning before the midterm. Uh, President Trump will be out in Missouri campaigning uh, in what looks like mm, a, a race that is going the other way, meaning Claire McCaskill is holding on to a three-point lead in Missouri. So Donald Trump is bringing in the big guns, Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh with him to Missouri tonight. I don't think it's going to work. Go Claire McCaskill. Wherever you are, we are happy to see you today, and I uh, hope you had a great weekend. Now ready to dive into the news of the day as we join you online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Joining you on Free Speech TV, coast to coast, as well, and out in the greater Chicago area. Here we are, the city of Chicago and all the surrounding uh, suburbs, uh, those great communities out there on WCPT. Uh, we have been at it for just about an hour, stirring up uh, a lot of dust. Peter Ogburn has a day off, by the way. So Ray Rogers here. Uh, Good morning. Keeping things afloat, right? And uh, some comments so far? Yes, we're getting lots of comments on Twitter. So we ran a poll um, over the weekend, and it ended. What is your number one issue heading into Election Day? Uh, uh. 22% of you said climate change. Hmm. 54% the um, winner of the poll is healthcare. 4% immigration, 20% other. We got a lot of comments on that. Tom says... His priority is tipping back the balance of power in favor of Democrats so that we may address all of the above and bring Donald Trump to justice. And we also have Judy weighing in saying that her number one priority is saving our democracy. Chris says all of these are important, but getting power back is a must. Our country cannot progress with the Republicans in control and Trump needs to be out. Um, we also had... I, I find it amazing. N not amazing, but... Uh, once again, reaffirms healthcare. Healthcare. Healthcare, healthcare. is it. Healthcare has emerged as a number one issue, in the, uh, even though Donald Trump is trying to make it immigration. If you talk to people, real mm -hmm. voters, it's healthcare, and particularly concern over what Republicans want to do um, for pre-existing conditions. And let's let's just state the uh, state it one more time. They are they want to do away with the protections for people with pre-existing conditions no matter what they claim otherwise they are on the record they are in the courts right now the trump administration and house and senate republicans are in the courts joining attorneys general around the country to do away with the pro pro provision that insurance companies have to sell insurance to people with pre-existing conditions that's part of obamacare Republicans are in court trying to get rid of it. So that issue alone, good reason for voting straight Democratic ticket tomorrow. Absolutely, and I hope that the Democrats are able to just keep pounding on that issue and really capitalize on this moment because the Republicans, as you said, are just throwing out blatant lies, and it's such a, it's such a winning issue for Democrats. All right. Thank you, Ray, mm -hmm. very much. Uh, turn out, turn out, turn out. Uh, I know we sound like a broken clock this uh, these last few few weeks, but that is the message. That is what is going to make the difference, particularly turnout among young people. Uh, is are we going to see, is it happening? Are we going to see it? Well, let's find out. Generation Progress is a special project of the Great Center for American Progress. Executive Director of Generation Progress, Maggie Thompson, joins us in studio. Uh, hi, Maggie. It's nice Thanks to see you. Thanks for having me, Bill. Thanks for coming in. So tell us about Generation Progress. What is your mission? 
So we are the youth engagement arm of the Center for American Progress. So we do policy advocacy by and for young people, and we define young as 18 to 35, so I still I still count. We're still, we're still <laughs> in the mix here. Yeah, huh? I'm still in the mix. I so was just wondering. Okay, yeah, we're, glad we're you still, clarified that. Okay. Yep, we talk... Um, when we define young, we say 18 to 35, so we're talking mostly about millennials and Generation Z, um, which they are the biggest and most diverse generations in our nation's history. And this year, I know there's been a lot of talk about this being the year of the woman, but I am feeling very strongly that if we do what we need to tomorrow, this could be the year of the youth vote. Uh, this is the first year that young people um, are now the largest largest share of the eligible electorate. So we're outnumbering boomers, we're outnumbering the greatest generation. Um, we just have the numbers. And also this generation is much more progressive than previous generations were um, when they were in their 20s. Uh, those are all good signs. So wait, so gen millennials, and Generation C? Z. Z. Z, Z as in Z. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> or Z, Z as in zebra. <laughs> so that, that, that's, that's what comes after, after millennial. After millennial. I'm sure there's going to be some so, uh, demographic is, debate on um, what they yeah. want to be called. So Z is what, 18 to 21 or? Uh, younger, younger. So the, the um, 17, 18, 19 years, years old right now are Generation Z. There's a couple different line, places yeah. where you can draw the line. Mm -hmm. But if we're talking about the youth vote, as voters 18 to 35, that's still primarily millennials. Yeah. But you've got Gen, Gen Z coming up fast behind. Millennials really go up to 35? They actually go up to 38 right now. So just to put it mm. in context, people, I think, hear the word millennial and think that we're all yeah. still college yeah. students. We're 22-year-olds. Right. But no, really, um, thinking about the 2020 presidential election, the first millennials will be turning 40 by the time we get to that presidential election. So the generation is growing up. Well, then uh, they'll be members of AARP. <laughs> <laughs> Despite you Peter's go, best efforts, Peter is a millennial, Bill, and you can tell him this. <laughs> you go right, you go from millennial to AARP, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's like that 10-year gap we're going to have after 2020, and then we can start being eligible. I don't care as long as you vote. Right? Yeah. What, what group you're, what you're, so what are you, um, you know, I keep hope alive, right? I, I, I hope I, I just count on young people turning out and getting excited. Um, and as I was at that age in politics. Um, but a month or so ago, I saw this story. The NBC did this thing. It went viral. They went out to some high school in Orange mm -hmm. County, California, and they talked to the kids there. And not one of these kids plan to vote yeah. or I, knew, I think there's who, like knew a whole, what the races were or something, yeah. and I said, oh, my God, You know, what's I, I kind of think there's a whole series of um, what I would call, it's almost like boomer clickbait of like, look at these young people who aren't showing up. They don't care. And every time we get a poll, and I, I believe that we haven't figured out how to poll young people because we are the, the you know, disconnecting. True. Yeah. Um, but I think that a better thing to look at is what we've seen in the early vote. We came off just a massive weekend in early vote for young people. And um, I think the counterexample to that video that you saw was at North Carolina State University and several other universities after the um, uh, North Carolina GOP shut down several polling locations and shortened hours, um, students at that school were in line for four hours on Saturday. Um, they were just um, persistent and they were in line. And I think that what we need to think about mm -hmm. with when we're thinking about this generation and voting is that this is a generation that uh, you know, is disproportionately targeted by voter suppression efforts because if you move a around a lot, you're going to be right. more targeted. Um, 
it's a really diverse generation. So when we look at voter suppression efforts that are targeting communities of color, they're also targeting young people simply because of the diversity of our generation. So literally the zip codes that young people are living in are places that are being targeted. And we saw in Florida, Florida early, early, earlier this year an attempt that was later overthrown by a court um, to close campus polling places. So right. I really think um, the fact that we have young people overcoming those voter suppression barriers uh, is just really inspiring. And I think I, I pulled up a few numbers. There's a, a tracker online from a company called Target Smart where they update daily the early vote numbers. Mm-hmm. And the increases in turnout between, they, they track both 18 to 29-year-olds and then 30 to 39-year-olds. And especially among 18 to 29-year-olds, the increases in early and absentee voters um, between now and 2014 are just massive. So in Minnesota, for example, you saw a 310% increase wow. in 18 to 29-year-old year voters. Texas, we're seeing almost a 500% increase in young voters turning out and doing early vote more than in 2014. North Carolina was 170%, again, despite those shortened hours, closed uh, locate, locations. Wisconsin was massive, and obviously we've got a lot of important races in Wisconsin. Yeah, yeah. 759% increase wow. in 18 to 29-year-olds so early these voting. Are, these are over 20, over 2014, yes, over the last over 2014. Terms. Right. I heard that Texas number over the weekend. That's astounding, 500%. Yeah. And that's got to help Beto O'Rourke. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I these think, young people are not coming out because they're excited about Ted Cruz. Yeah, what we see is that this is, this is a very progressive generation. And nationally, on average, uh, you see young people um, giving Democrats about a 10-point advantage in the youth vote. And, of course, that varies state by state. And generally, the more diverse the population of young voters is in a state, the more um, dem it will it will go. Um, and I think just but just to one other state that just yeah, blew my yeah. socks off this morning was North Dakota, obviously an older state. There's not a, a large youth vote there, but their increase in early vote for young people was two thousand four hundred and seventy five percent. What? Over 2014. Yes. So when we're thinking about two thousand four hundred and seventy five percent in increase. God. And, you know, the numbers are small. You're talking about you know, less than 100 young people early voted in 2014 in Nebraska, but that's gone up to over 4,000 after this weekend, which doesn't sound like a lot in the real numbers, but for a small state, that is a huge increase. Sure it is. And it's um, largely, um, we we believe, it's hard hard to tell, not being able to track exactly who is voting, but we believe that most of those are going to be youth voters, or new voters, excuse me, among the new young voters. So. And I Wisconsin was seven fifty nine. Seven fifty nine. That's right. Wow, wow. No, so, there's so many important races there. Um, uh, so you're able to track these are these are people who've gotten in line or sent in an absentee ballot. That's right. right? And they're do we know? Absentee ballots. Do we know whether they're voting Democrat or Republican? We don't, and it's it's a. It's hard to know. There's you'd have to have exit li- polls, maybe. Y- exactly. I guess. Uh, you have exit polls. We can we can sort of look at you know in states where there is party registration, who is requesting the ballots and who's early voting. Um. So, but I think generally, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk because these midterms are so. Um, they're firing up so many people on um, both the left and the right. So there are increases that we're seeing both among Dems and Republicans, but in the numbers. 
the generations that are increasing their turnout are those voters that are under 39. Mm -hmm. And just knowing what we know about the sort of political affiliations or values of this generation, um, that's got to be a good thing for us. Um, I do think that it's it's not we're not there yet. Obviously, you can't have people just turn on an early vote. We also need a huge election day surge, um, especially in states that uh, don't you know get a lot of their vote totals from early vote. So right. tomorrow's is, is going to be a big day. But I really, you know, I, I am hoping that we really just sort of claim <laughs> claim the throne or the power. I don't I don't know exactly what phrase. Now, I to guess use. the last time that we saw such a surge among young voters was Barack Obama. Yes, that's right. right. Okay, this is not a presidential year, mm -hmm. so it's it, it doubly extraordinary for them for, to, to really be motivated to come out in for midterm elections. Yep. So, because there is no one exciting national candidate, Texas, better or worse, but I mean nationwide. Mm -hmm. So what is motivating young voters today? Um, uh, rediscovering democracy, or is it any particular uh, issue or, or ish set of issues? You know, I think that what do you find that they, you know, are what 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 gets them excited? Yeah, you know, I think there's a few things going on here. One of one thing is is simply just the demographics. Like I said, this is a massive generation. We just have the numbers, so we are aging into voting. So we're sort of that the the sort of um, top of the bell curve of the generation is now reaching voting age. So there, it's partially demographics. I think something that's also been really important this year is that campaigns are getting better at talking to young people. It used to be back when I was working on campaigns that your quote-unquote youth vote plan would be like one 22-year-old that was the campus organizer and you'd send them to the traditional four-year campus and like that was yeah, it. Right. I think that um, we're getting a lot smarter now, especially in the digital space. And knowing that the numbers are there for the youth vote, so campaigns are focusing more resources on turning out young voters. And need to see more of because like I said it's I think it's politically um, irresponsible at this point when we have so many young voters and as progressives so many of them are with us for us not to be investing massively in helping them um, turn out and the mm -hmm. earlier you get somebody to become a voter um, it's a habit forming thing the more likely that we're going to have them for the long run right uh, but uh, I, I want to come back to issues for example mm -hmm. after Parkland you know, the young people in Parkland did such an incredible job around the country of saying, you know, okay, midterms are coming. This has got to be an issue. Are are, are guns a major factor? Absolutely. Yeah. And we. Gun safety. Yep. I mean, gun safety measures. Absolutely. And we've worked with a number of survivors across the country who are out doing GOTV in their communities. And I mean, for this generation, gun violence is the new normal. We just put out a report later this year, earlier this year, that shows. You are more likely, if you are under 29 in this country, to be killed with a gunshot than you are to die in a car accident. So this is something that is sort of, um, it's it's a known lived experience where for most young people, even if they haven't experienced it personally, they know someone or they're just two degrees of separation from someone that's been impacted by gun violence. Yeah. So that's been a huge motivator and I mean, it's something we, we're we seeing just in the talk, polls. We just talked about um, the fact that um, healthcare is, has emerged as such an mm -hmm. important issue in so many of these races, particularly around the question of pre-existing conditions. But I would imagine for the millennials, healthcare is not as strong an issue because you know they're young, they're healthy, they're going to live forever, and they'll never get sick, and they'll never need health insurance. I mean, well, you know, I I think that since the, the Affordable gun Care Act is a direct thing. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, I, I think since the Affordable Care Act was implemented, that has given young people the stability that they didn't have before. And again, I think that 
you know, young people do care about healthcare, especially the, that sort of older cohort of millennials. Those uh-huh. millennials yeah. that are in that sort of 30 to 35. Well, then their they're off their parents' plan, right? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Well, not only are they off their parents' plan, there's a good chance that they're parents themselves. Um, we also uh, mm-hmm. have mm. been seeing that young people, the stability that being able to buy health care in a market can give them in the job market is so important because you have more young people who are working contract jobs um, or they just want so the flexibility to be able issue. to leave their job. Absolutely. Yeah. It's an important issue. Um, and I think that young people, you know, we, we spent so much time in the last few years talking about the marketplaces, talking about pre-existing conditions. I do think there's a um, that's really sunk in. And I think that's something that um, people understand. It, it, you know, it took us a little while um, because the Affordable Care Act, the implementation was hard. It was complicated. But people get it now and they want to move in that direction. Climate change. Absolutely. We've um, we've had several thousand young people tell us um, their stories and pledge to be climate voters. I think what's a little bit different, at least, <clears throat> excuse me, for me mm-hmm. this year, um, y- y- there's a lot more young people who are talking about how they see climate change impacting them directly. It used to be that climate change was something that young activists on campuses were talking about, but we're seeing now young people in Miami who have sunny day flooding because of climate change and sea level rise. We have a, a whole um, sort of cohort of new young activists out west who are dealing with wildfires, who are dealing with poor air quality. And we've actually been working with a number of young farmers in Ohio who have been doing um, media for us talking about how the grow, how the growing season is becoming more and more erratic and how that's making it difficult for them to stay on their farm and stay farmers. So I, I think climate change is incredibly important, but what's great is the way we're talking about it is a little bit different this year because young people, they've sort of connected the dots and they're seeing how climate change is impacting their day-to-day lives. Right. So the, the demographics um, are so key, I mean, and um, so critical to where we're going as a country, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the face of America is changing. Yep. And maybe the face of the face of America has changed <laughs> and is changing rapidly. Now, maybe the electorate, the voting population hasn't doesn't hasn't changed as fast. Mm-hmm. Right. But that change is coming. I mean, yep. older white males are dying <laughs> right well, and and, you, could, and, you could look at the back end or you could say a young diverse generation is growing up yeah right but i mean that that the the people the, the part of the electorate that the republican party and particularly donald trump have really depended on yes. as their base absolutely. is shrinking absolutely right and going to continue to shrink mm-hmm. and ain't coming back right yep. mm-hmm. they're not going to die and then come back to life Maybe, right, no zombie maybe voters. It's, maybe it's nope. a butterfly or something, but not. <laughs> but meaning this younger generation, which is younger, more female, more diverse, yep. racial, then, and that's a different, different crowd of people Absolutely. to appeal to and to vote. Right? Absolutely, and, and interested in different issues and mm-hmm. have different values and 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 don't feel threatened by change. Yeah. The way that older white male population does. Absolutely. And I, I, it, that's what gives me a lot of hope. And I, I think just looking at the numbers that we have in our generation, uh, sort of our core message throughout the cycle uh, when we're talking to young people and, and talking to them about voting is, you know, we want to talk about this in an optimistic way. We don't want to focus on all the terrible things that Trump is doing to attack their communities. They know that. They understand that. Um 
But the hopeful message, this idea that there's more of us than there are of them, and if we just increase our turnout, we can run the table and be in charge, that's been the thing that's been really exciting young voters. Um, and, you know, just this idea that things aren't as hopeless as sometimes they seem with everything that's happening in Washington mm -hmm. right now, and that there's a different path we can take. And I think that's a really important thing um, that people so, get wrong sometimes. So what practical things are you doing uh, to get people out to vote? So we have a tool that's, um, we're, we partnered with MTV and TurboVote on a tool. If you go to genprogress.org slash vote, you Gen can. Genprogress.org slash vote. Yep. Very mm -hmm. important. Exactly. And that's a place where you can not only check your own registration um, or sign in for text reminders. At this point, you don't really need a reminder. It's tomorrow, right. guys. Tomorrow. Turn out yeah. to vote. Okay. But you can also uh, sign up and text your friends to vote. It's a tool that will um, you know, make sure that they are able to quickly find their polling place. And it sort of mixes um, that relational texting where you can text your friends with a tool that's really easy to use. It's nonpartisan. You can figure out where to vote, voting hours and all of that. Cool. Um, so that's the, the main push that we have in these last few days. And I think also just making sure that we're lifting up the stories of young people who are out there working. I think, you know, we have a lot of young people who are either on campaigns or they're volunteering to turn out their communities. And I, I think one of the most inspiring stories for me of this cycle is um, young dreamers or undocumented young people who they can't vote, but that doesn't mean that they aren't running canvases. They're out there knocking on doors. They're turning out their communities because they are under attack and they know they need to step up and fight. And it's just, um, it's it's been a really inspiring last couple of weeks um, working with some of them. My wife was making calls for Stacey Abrams um, this weekend, and she's talked about one person that she called who said um, that he could not vote because he's an ex-felon, mm -hmm. but he was doing everything he could, getting Absolutely. his family to vote for Stacey, yep. getting all of his friends to vote for Stacey, you know, taking people to the polls for early voting to vote for Stacey. Yep. So exactly. even though he couldn't, which was a sad story, he should be able to vote. Yep. Another whole story, but yep. but. Um, uh, I was going to ask you about in getting involved. The way I got started in politics was getting involved in a in a campaign mm -hmm. and as a volunteer, you know. And so, yeah. yes, it's important, most important to vote. It's also great to see young people you know, out out there as staffers and volunteers in political campaigns. Are you seeing a lot of interest in that as well? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I think that we have just a, a really sharp, incredible group of new young operatives or activists, whatever we want to call them. And I'm very excited about sort of what they do next, yeah. especially not just here in D.C., but at the state level. Um, you know, we we are so underrepresented at the state level as young people. Um, we're, we're 34 percent of the voting population, but we only hold six percent of state legislative seats. So only six percent of state legislators are 35 and under, um, which is a problem because that's our bench. That's yeah. who's going to run yeah. statewide, right. who's right. going to run for Absolutely. federal office in the future. So I, I really think that at the local and state level, there's just a massive opportunity. I, I always tell young people we work with, this isn't about just about youth vote, it's about youth power. So what's your perch of power? How are you gonna pursue it? It's not just voting, but it's running for office. If you don't wanna run, like there are citizen boards, there are commissions, a lot of them have budgets that control money in your community. We need to be forcing our way into those public and civic spaces and taking leadership. Absolutely, yeah, oh yeah, that's so important, uh, you know, starting out and, but I also, I, I think we're already seeing, aren't we, more mm -hmm. young people yes. running for office. We have I mean, a look surge at this, of young people running. Th this class in this Congress, among, among the Democratic uh, candidates for Congress, will be 
uh, if things go the way we think they're going to go and hope they'll go tomorrow, uh, that the members, of the, at least on the Democratic caucus, will mm-hmm. be younger, more diverse, more female than ever before. That's right. And we're seeing the same thing in a surge of youth candidates at the state legislative level. Yeah, that's so And this important. could be, yeah. depending on what happens in mm-hmm. South Dakota, the year that America elects its first millennial governor, Billy mm-hmm. Sutton. Um, Andrew Gillum is one year older, so he's not technically a millennial, but he's is 39. Right? Oh, so yeah. he's, he's, he's the caboose. Billy Sutton's a great candidate. <laughs> I've met yeah. him. He's so inspiring. Right? Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So we have sort of at every level, there's um, the congressional races. We've got, um, you know, a lot of young candidates for governor. And then we have just this surge of youth candidates in the state legislature, which is so important. And for me, looking at the state level is what I've been most focused on, because just looking at uh, the redistricting challenges that we're going to have in a lot of states, how do we make sure that we're represented as young people and our communities' votes aren't discounted? And the state level is where we're going to win those fights. All right. So millennials and Gen Z, we are counting on you. Don't let us down tomorrow. you got to step up. you got to be there. If you haven't already, but many of you I know already have. Uh, and those of you who want to know more about how and where to vote, genprogress.org slash vote, right? Genprogress.org slash vote. Maggie Thompson, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, Bill. Nobody knows the political scene better than John Allen from NBC News, national political reporter. Uh, Stepping up next here on The Bill Press Show. Quick break. We'll be right back. Same great show. New great channel. Stream live video at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And on a Monday, November 5, here we are, folks, the day before. Man, it's good to see the end of the road, but you know we'll be starting down the next road, <laughs> 2020, the day after. Uh, or maybe maybe they'll give us one day to talk about the results of Tuesday, and then we'll be into the next round. We're coming to you live from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., where we're brought to you today by the, by the Laborers International Union of North America. L-I-U-N-A, LIUNA, under the leadership of President Terry O'Sullivan. Uh, check out their website at liunabuildsamerica.org. We salute them, thank them for the support of the program. And welcome here to the studio uh, on a very important day. John Allen, national political reporter for NBC News. Hello, John. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Bill? Uh, it's good to see this uh, thing kind of wrap up, isn't it? Uh, it is. And let me just say, as a longtime visitor, first time nothing. I'm not a first time anything. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, it's been uh, a long road. It has been a long road. Yeah. Uh, from starting the day after November 2016. Right. I mean, it's, uh, you know, immediate. Uh, from the days of the Women's March and the resistance, uh, so to speak, um, you know, right up until the to the polling and uh the New York Times live polls that everybody's watching, uh, and then this this combination of on the Democratic side, side sort of excitement and fear, um, where you start talking to Democrats and and they're like, are, are we really going to win the House or is this Lucy in the football? And then on the Republican side, uh, you know, fear that there may have been a strategic miscalculation here uh, by the president and and really a knowledge that there's no ability to persuade him to do anything other than just go to talk to his base. 
let's talk about both of those. On the Democratic side, uh, can you blame them for being nervous? I can't blame them for being nervous. They thought they were going to win the presidency. Exactly. That's what my and they, point is. And they are, After 2016, <laughs> they'll always be nervous before an election, right? Well, in 2000 uh, as well. I mean, look, the, this is a party, uh, the Democratic Party, that has uh, won the popular vote a couple times in recent memory and not won the presidency, uh, that understands that um, the congressional district map favors Republicans, uh, that they've... Uh, had two decades in a row of of drawing districts um, and uh, sort of understands that it is difficult for them to win power uh, in the House or at the presidential level uh, simply because of the way our our, uh, elections work. Which means that Democrats, uh, I still think they're going to take the House, but that Democrats could do extremely well in the popular vote and yet that not be reflected exactly in the seats that they pick up. Right. That's right? I mean, It's very likely that, uh, because what we've seen in recent past elections is that uh, Democratic popular vote performance outpaces what the Democratic representation in the House that's, is. That's, yeah, better way of saying it. Um, and that's yeah. and that's been the case for, you know, for a while. And, and look, there were decades where Democrats were redrawing districts and the map favored them, right? I mean, you had the Democratic control of the House oh. for 40 years uh, you know, you can't tell me redistricting had nothing to do with that. But uh, I remember as a very young man in the California, working in for a state senator in California, in the California legislature, and when it came time to draw the maps for California, and the state assembly voted on it, I was there in the chamber, uh, and standing in the middle of the floor was Congressman Phil Burton from San Francisco. He drew the maps, <laughs> and he was there to make sure every Democrat voted for it. Right. Now, in the old days, the it two- was, it, there, there was no doubt about it. It was machine politics all the way. And in the old days, the two parties in Congress would often get together and simply draw incumbent protection yes, plans. Yes, uh, And that sort of broke down uh, with Newt Gingrich in the nineteen uh, mm-hmm. nine, post-1990 census round of redistricting. Uh, Gingrich saw an opportunity, a very smart opportunity, to create more uh, minority majority districts that would be democratic, but also in doing so, uh, move uh, move white voters into districts that would be more Republican. So what you would do is get fewer white Democratic districts in the South, and more Black Democratic districts, and more white Republican districts um, as a result. And so that was, uh, you know, that's sort of the legacy of Newt, which has been very good for the Republican Party. So on the Republican side. Um uh, to your to your point, there's an article in Politico this morning where some Republicans, I think that's where I saw it, um, are complaining about the president accusing the president of hijacking the election. You know, there are issues that they want to talk about, but he has made it all about immigration, immigration, immigration. Uh, and some of them are concerned that that, meant that may not play well for them. Several months ago, Republicans determined that there was a problem for the midterms that was uh, Democrats were enthusiastic and energized, the so-called blue wave was coming, and that on the Republican side, you had traditional Republicans who who might come out to vote, but you had an unenthusiastic Donald Trump base, Yes, particularly a Donald Trump base. People who voted for Trump, but not necessarily consider themselves Republicans otherwise, or are unlikely voters in, in midterm elections. And so they said, basically went to the to the president, or at least the president's 
political people looked at it and said, the only way we're going to compete in these midterms is to drive the base out. And so, the, you know, ever since then, uh, the the White House has driven this strategy of trying to uh, push out the president's base to help Republicans in the midterms. Now, this is helpful for the president's, you know, it happens to dovetail with what the president would want to do uh, for 2020 in terms of keeping his base activated. Um, but there is a school of thought that this is uh, – that the president is basically following in the footsteps of the Democrats of 2016 in talking only to the people who already support him and not expanding beyond his foundation. I thought that was illustrative of that was the other night in Florida where he said, okay, how many have already voted? And almost every hand went up. And he jokingly said, which I thought was pretty accurate, well, why am I here? Right, right. <laughs> in other words, he wasn't moving like Beyond the base, right? Or even the base was... Right, if you drove four hours to get to a Trump rally... By the way, I've been to 16 of them, I think, this year. A lot of people drive long distances to go to these things. Yeah, you told us that the last time you were in. Right. So, I mean, you're driving that distance to go to a rally. uh, You're probably going to show up on Election Day or early vote or mail-in or whatever it is in your state that you have to do to vote. Well, isn't it, and you alluded to this, isn't it a fact that these rallies, and you've been to so many of them, they're really the first wave of the Trump 2020 campaign, aren't they? Absolutely. And and they are under the auspices I mean, of the campaign, right? They're paid for by the campaign. Yeah. Um, and, right. You know, and they have Trump 2020 signs. Right. Uh, he filed for re-election on uh, Inauguration Day in 2017. That early? Yes. He filed for re-election that day. on Inauguration Day. I knew it was early. I didn't realize it was Inauguration And day. he has Whoa. been campaigning for re-election ever since. In fact, he right. talks about... His slogan being "Keep America Great." Yeah, he's been saying yes. that for months and months now. Right. Um, this Trump obviously wants to keep Congress in Republican hands, but it is more about him than it is about the Congress. Well, and there's, I yeah. think, there's ambivalence from him about what is better for him because it is obviously bad for him politically for the Democrats to have the House. And uh, investigate him potentially, like on a on a very immediate scale. It's bad for his agenda in terms of the Democrats having the House if they're if they're to win it, uh, and not being able to get some of his agenda passed. But in terms of running for re-election, may be helpful for him to use a Democratic House as a foil if they overreach. So but, I think there's some ambivalence there. Let me give you another alternative. And you never know with Donald Trump, right? Uh, I don't think Donald Trump gives a rat's ass whether uh, about House Republicans or Senate Republicans. And I, my prediction is that if Democrats take back the House, he'll be making deals with Democrats as fast as you could blink. Uh, I think I, I don't you know, know that I, I don't know if it's as fast as you could blink, but I think that he will have tremendous incentive to do that. And remember the, the and Nancy House Pelosi, Democrats Chuck Schumer budget thing, right? right? House Democrats will have some incentive to do that. Yeah, Certainly the yeah. newly elected ones will have right. some incentive to do that. However, the but, problem for any president, and we see this with, uh, you know, we saw this with Obama, we saw it with Bush at times, the vast majority of the Democratic caucus in the House is not in a swing district. Right. And so yeah. the the center of gravity on deal-making with the president will be against making deals with Donald Trump no matter what they are. But let's get, for example, an infrastructure thing. Infrastructure. It's doable. Right? Yeah. An immigration deal is doable. The contours immigration. of immigration are there. Right. 
Right. Uh, I mean, he has to basically push Stephen Miller out the side door of the. I mean, Stephen Miller probably cannot be involved in any negotiation. Right. That results, but yeah. on a policy level, they need to drop some of the some of the stuff that Trump has been demanding on to right. get a democratic deal. But, but the contours are there: border security, uh, some form of uh, path to citizenship, DACA taken care of, yeah. uh, and you know, and you you sort of get the get the deal done. They, that that has been there forever. Trump may be the only president who can get it done. Bush couldn't get it done. Obama couldn't get it done. It may take somebody who you know, in a Nixon right. going to China kind of way. Who is so hard line on the border, and yet, if Trump does that, it will anger his base to the point that they may abandon him. I mean, it's yeah, it's would, it seems odd to people who aren't really focused on what's going on on the fringes of the you know on the hard fringes mm-hmm. of the right. There are a lot of people who yeah. are upset with him for not uh, having put the border wall up yet, and now they they'll deflect to the Democrats at the moment, but. There's still some frustration about it. Right. Um, there are people who are upset with him for being too pro-Israel, as, as we've seen, you know, and, yeah. or various there's various levels of upsetness on the fringe right. So when you add all of this up, um, I know uh, I made this point earlier. I just want to see if you agree, but you know, you talk to almost any Democrat, and they'll say, you know, this these midterms are about you know these important issues, healthcare, jobs, kind of whatever. Uh, this is not a referendum on Donald Trump. This is not the election, or not a referendum on Donald Trump. I think they're they're dead wrong. I think this Donald Trump has made this a referendum on Donald Trump. The midterms. Yeah, and, I mean, and, and people a... are coming out. I mean, it's they're basically voting yes or no. Do you like what Donald Trump is doing or not? Horse hockey is the is the ter- polite term for what they're saying. I mean, Donald yeah. Trump has made it about him. Yeah. He said he's making it about him. He says, I'm not on the ballot, but really, I kind of am on the ballot, so go out and vote. Yes, and if for you me. talk to people who who are familiar with the thinking behind his strategy, they, they said, like, the only way to motivate his base is to get them to believe that he's on the ballot. So he yeah. is making it about him. Yeah. Um, Democrats are also making it about him. If you look at what is what the Democratic strategy is or the issue set that they're talking about, they have um, unexpectedly not fought him on every sort of twist and turn at the very end here, right, where he's saying, I'm going to end birthright citizenship. They're, they're not sort of taking the bait at the end. But if you look at the sort of broader context of it, they they are energized by him. They are angry about him. And the main argument that they have made across the country this year is pre-existing conditions on health care, which is, while a huge issue, is basically one issue. There's not like some big, broad Democratic platform about how they're going to do right. the economy differently than Trump, right? They, I mean, it's not like they've decided that they're mm-hmm. going to no. offer alternative B. And I think what we've learned in congressional elections over time is you don't really have to offer an alternative. At a presidential level, you have to have a vision for the country. At a congressional level, often you just have to not be the other guy. Mm-hmm. Right. Or a woman. Right. <laughs> Uh, the so um, which of the races do you think are that? What are you going to? Which ones are you really going to be watching tomorrow? That I mean, so many, but there's got to be some that either you find the most exciting or that the most determinative that really kind of show which way the country is going. Well, I mean, I think there are going to be some early indicators. Um, I think, and for different reasons, I think the margin uh, in uh, Virginia's tenth district, which is right outside Washington. Maybe telling that's Barbara Comstock, the uh, uh, 
Republican congresswoman who's uh, familiar to Washington insiders because she's one of them. Uh, and uh, Jennifer Wexton is the Democrat in that race. Um, that's a traditionally Republican area. Um, it is Washington suburbs, but they're actually kind of far out, as you know, mm-hmm. uh, sort of exurb- <laughs> exurban areas. Um, if that's something where the Democrats win by eight or ten points, that's probably a good sign for them. Uh, also in Virginia early, um, you look at Dave Bratt, the guy who beat Eric Cantor a couple mm-hmm. of years ago in a Republican primary running against Abigail Spanberger. She's become sort of a darling of yeah, uh, the I, Democrats in the Washington area. They were, they were all out knocking on doors for her over the weekend. I have several friends who, family, drove all the way to Richmond to knock on doors. I mean, not just make phone calls from here, go down there to knock on doors. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that was the sort of hip place to be over the weekend for the Democratic yeah. operative set in yeah. Washington. Isn't it funny? Um, it was, you know, in the other direction, um, you'll, uh, you've got some uh, New Jersey races. I think... One that I'll be watching as as a little bit of a bellwether is um, uh, Tom MacArthur, the Republican congressman from New Jersey, who uh, who was actually wrote this pre-existing conditions waiver language mm. was part of that discussion, um, and is generally considered a moderate Republican. Running against Andy Kim is the Democrat in that race, a former Obama administration official. That should be a Republican district. Um, it's a really close race. I think that you know maybe an early bellwether, but there are some fascinating races across the country. I mean, uh, I I think Dallas uh, in the Dallas suburbs, um, uh, Pete Sessions, uh, the longtime mm, yeah. Republican oh, congressman yeah. uh, who's uh, uh, been on the Rules Committee forever, used to be the National Republican Congressional uh, Campaign Committee chairman. Um, he uh, his district went to Clinton by a few points, maybe even less than a few points. Uh, running against Colin Allred, a former NFL player, uh, who's the Democrat there. Um, that district is tight as a tick, according to the polling. I've been talking to people on the ground down there. They say that one's going to be super close. You might see a Beto O'Rourke effect in that district and also in uh, one involving John Culberson outside of Houston. He's a Republican incumbent. So, uh, you know, all over the country, um, there are kind of fun fun and interesting races to one watch. One that, uh, that has emerged now as a uh, possible upset is um, Steve King uh, in Iowa, who, uh, even while Donald Trump pursues his sort of nationalist racist agenda on the, on, border, on the border, that a lot of Republicans are now saying, Steve King is going too far. We've got to draw the line at Steve King. And uh, his challenger there, uh, Steve's, you know, J.D. Shulton. J.D. Shulton said it. Yeah, thank you. Well, good for you. Um, it's coming on strong, and um, that would be a real upset. I mean, yeah, I mean, Steve King's district is considered one of the most conservative in the country. Here's a guy yeah. who wins by you know 20 points every time. Right. Um, you know, when pe- when Republicans go to Iowa to campaign, um, they they go to Steve King's district to to get the conservative base. Yeah. Um, and Steve King may have gone too far out. Now, you know, I mean, the question there's sort of a double question. It's one has he, you know or three really. One is is he out of line with the values of the district, right? Um, and so has he gone so far that even people there are like this is too much. Two has he embarrassed them simply by becoming a national storyline, even whether they you know whether right. they agree with him or not. Um, and then, you know, three is he simply just not focused on the issues that matter to the district because he's focused on some of these other issues and meeting with, you know, far right nationalist types in Europe, in Europe yeah, and yeah. endorsing them in Canada and stuff. I, you know, I, I still would be surprised if King lost. That said, 
when a candidate get against an, an incumbent and insurgent gets a lot of momentum going, um, and you saw this with the Bernie Sanders campaign in the primaries in 2016, you know, it's just a question of where the wave breaks, right? So, mm-hmm. it, you know, if the election's held on a Saturday, it might be that you lose by three, but if it was held on Monday, you'd win by two, uh, and, you know, held on the next Friday, you lose by one. Um, I, I think that uh, clearly the momentum is against King in that race. I uh, laughed out loud this morning uh, at uh, the ungodly hour of 5 a.m. when I got up uh, to see I had a tweet from Donald Trump endorsing Dana Rohrbacher in Orange County. So uh, the day before the uh, the primary, he finally gets far enough down the list that he sends out a tweet about it. He hasn't done you know, much for House Republican, House Republican candidates. Mostly it's been U.S. Senate candidates, but... Warbacher's in trouble, and I think he goes down. He's one of the few people in America who's been on both sides of the Soviet-Afghan war. <laughs> I thought <laughs> that is going... to say, you know, he went out to he, he supported, uh, you know, the the precursor to the Taliban. He voted for the war, but he no, no, no. I mean, oh. way back in the in the oh, late seventies, oh, yeah. oh, he was right. he was uh, a supporter of the Mujahideen. <laughs> Against That's the Russians, right. yes. driving yes. the Russians yes. out of Afghanistan, yes. and in the recent past has been a strong supporter of of Vladimir Putin's Russia. It's, I mean, <laughs> he's been very, very involved in some very fringe political causes over time. Um, that said, he's been there since oh. the eighties. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he he yeah. worked for yeah. Reagan in the White House and has basically been in Congress since shortly after that time. Right. Um, you know, and, uh, but that little nest of of districts there, four or five districts in Orange County, North San Diego County, is is a prime pickup target for uh, uh, possibilities for the for the Democrats. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of money's going in there from all over the country, and looking good. Yeah, I think the the way I look at the map is that there's a couple places of low hanging fruit. Uh, there are some coastal districts that are for mm-hmm. the Democrats more low hanging fruit. I would put several of the California ones in that category. Several of the New Jersey ones in that category. New York, New York and Pennsylvania, too, right? Yeah, several yeah. In, the, in those. And then, the, you know, the question for the Democrats will be, how do they do in the middle? Mm-hmm. And they're going to win some of those seats. You know, do they win a third of the compet- truly competitive seats in the middle of the country? Do they win half of them? Do they win two-thirds of them? That'll determine whether they have a majority, and if so, how big. The other potential in, in that middle uh, for Democrats are governorships, right? Michigan, um uh, uh, Minnesota, I think, or is, is Minnesota? No, uh, Wisconsin. Wisconsin, the other one I was thinking of. Yeah, for sure. Right. Florida. I mean, that's not in the middle, yeah. but that's a big governorship that's up. And uh, you know, unless there's a, uh, let's put it this way, the polling seems to suggest that Andrew Gillum is in in pretty good shape there. Mm-hmm. And Republicans I talk to who are familiar with the race say they think Gillum's going to win. And Stacey Abrams could win too, right? Maybe not as doesn't have the advantage that that Gillum does, but with Oprah. Maybe not on Tuesday. Oh. <laughs> I mean, the, her opponent does control the uh, election oh, right. systems. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and also, there's uh, so, also they have a runoff system in Georgia. So if neither of them gets 50%, and there is there is some possibility of that, that uh, you know, that it would actually extend beyond Tuesday. Uh, so let's talk about Georgia just a bit. So last week, two federal judges said that um, uh, Kemp's efforts to – deny some people the right the, the ability to vote because there was some little glitch in their the form they filled out that he had gone too far and to reverse that whether there's time for them to get reinstated and not 
by by tomorrow, who knows. Now, yesterday, he comes out and accuses the Democrats of trying to hack into the state election system. He did that before the 2016 election, too. Oh, did he really? Yes, he did. Oh, oh I, uh, so I mean, this, this is, is a, uh, you know, a tactic I, that worked for him once. I mean, maybe it'll prove that uh, he cried wolf once and there was no wolf, and this time he cries wolf and there's a wolf, but one would think that this might be a political stunt. It looks like it. Uh, looks speaking like of political stunts, is it okay for the President of the United States to roll up to a campaign rally paid for the, by the campaign in Air Force One and step off Air Force One on the tarmac and use Air Force One as the stage, basically, for a political campaign rally? If you're offended by it when Donald Trump does it, you have to be offended by it when Barack Obama does it or any Did other Obama president. do it? Uh, my understanding, and I, 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 I don't wish remember. my memory banks worked. As okay. well as as they could, but I talked to somebody who was uh, who was with uh, Obama in twelve who said that they did do that. So uh, because if, I, I brought it up, I said, "Did you guys correct, do this?" That's a good point. It's not fair. I don't think it's right for any president to do it. I don't remember ever seeing Obama standing in front of Air Force One the way Trump does, as he did with his campaign plane during twenty sixteen. I mean, that was right. his prop. Sure. And now he's using Air Force One right. as a prop, which I think is. Different the trappings of the White House have uh, often been used by presidents, and I think they do whatever they think they can get away with. But usually there's some limits, right? They don't give speeches from the Truman balcony. Like campaign rallies, yeah. They, yeah, they don't, right. they don't do that. Uh, th- there should be limits, um, but uh, and there there are limits, but obviously they've determined, somebody has determined that that's within, uh, within the rules. Yeah. Um, uh, Beto O'Rourke. Yes. <laughs> what about Beto O'Rourke? Well, you know what I want. I mean, it, is, he, is the question, is he going to win, or is the question, is he going to run for president? Oh, wow. Yeah. I think the answer to the second one is yes, if the answer to the first one is yes. I think the answer to the second one may be yes, even if the answer to the first one is no. Really? Yeah. I raised $38 million in a quarter from right. all over the country. I mean, and what is Iowa but a smaller Texas to run around and knock on people's doors and get people excited? I, if you're him, how do you not run for president if you lose? In fact, it might be easier to run for president if you mm-hmm. lose. Yeah. Because you don't have a Senate seat that you just promised right. to serve in. All right. We got it tomorrow. Get out and vote. John Allen, thanks for coming in. This is The Bill Press Show.